receiving a letter from somebody like this and then trying to break it up into little pieces. It just doesn't flow. And tonight was one of those lessons where it was hard to pick the place to end because the beauty of this letter is it just kind of keeps on growing and growing, going at the next point. So what we're going to do here a little bit is um, we're going to actually go a little quicker tonight because I want to cover a good section. I want to finish up chapter 2 and cover a good section of chapter 3 to get the whole point. Part of the beauty of what we do on Wednesday nights is Wednesday nights we can kind of focus on things that we normally wouldn't do on Sunday. We can spend a little bit of time chewing on some things. Well, this is going to be a lesson where I want us to focus on certain words as we go through this, and these words will build the picture of what we're going to do here tonight. So with that being said, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life, excuse me, aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but we have sincerity. But as from God we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Now, what happens when you read a passage of Scripture like that and you read those six verses, it just kind of all starts flowing together. So, let's break this down. Let's look at a couple words here. First word you need to look at in verse 12 is the word preach. That's the most important word here that's going to set the rest of the story. Preach. That's the reason Paul did these things, was to preach. How many times have we said out here, the two W's in life. You're called to worship and you're called to witness. So you are called to be a preacher. And that's what God has asked you to do. The word preach literally just means proclaim. And what are you proclaiming? You're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why you are here. That is what you're supposed to be doing. And so Paul says, I came to preach. So that's what we're all supposed to do. And, and to be quite honest with you, as you live your Christian life, if you don't take those opportunities when God gives you to share the gospel, there's always going to be a part of your walk that, to be quite honest, is going to feel a little empty, and it's going to feel a little bit like there should be more. But at the same time, too, I've seen Christians try to force the gospel down people's throat. I know when I first got saved. I got saved when I was a junior in high school. I tell you, that, that first six months, man, I mean, I preached to a lot of people, but it wasn't very fruitful. I mean, it was just anybody I saw, I was going to push the gospel down their throat. And what happened was, I didn't do the next word. Well, look in verse 12. A door was opened to me. See, that's part of the balance verse. Is you're supposed to preach, you're supposed to proclaim, but sometimes, verse 12, the door needs to be opened. And what happens sometimes as Christians is we usually do one of two extremes. The door is not open, but we really want to preach, so we just kick the door down and make it work. No fruit comes out of that. Or the door is completely wide open. God is completely opening a door for you to share the gospel, but because of our fears, our worries, our anxieties, we don't step up and do it. So we need to see when the door is open, and when the door is open, we then preach. That's that type of balance verse. I firmly believe with all my heart that if you wake up in the morning and you say, Okay, Lord, open doors for me today. God will open doors for you to get a chance to share the gospel. And he'll give you the wisdom on what to say, when to say, and how to say it. Sometimes you don't say anything. Jesus is the greatest example of this. Remember when Jesus stood before Herod, and even one time before Pontius Pilate, he had a great opportunity to preach the gospel to the Roman leader of that area of Jerusalem, and plus also the Jewish leader, and Jesus never took advantage of that. Why? Because he knew that's not where the Lord was leading. 
There have been times where I have looked in my wisdom and intellect and said, Lord, this is the time to share. And God says, no. There's also been times in my wisdom and intellect where I've said, Lord, not now. This can't be the time. And God says, yeah, now this is the time. And so I can't tell you when the door is going to be open, but part of the reason why you spend your time in prayer and preparation before you even start the day is to say, Lord, when that door opens, give me the wisdom and the guidance to know it so therefore I can take those opportunities that you do give to preach. So I encourage you, you're here to preach, and you're here to wait till that door is open. As God opens that door, you want to take it, and you want to go with it. But just make sure the Lord's opening the door. Don't kick the door down, but also don't be afraid to walk through the door. Now, what are you going to preach to them? Well, you're going to preach to them, well, very simply put, verses 14 and 15 and 16, you have a certain aroma to you. You smell spiritually. That's really what it kind of comes down to. And as you have this certain aroma, depending on your translations, good old King Jamesers there, I think it has like a savor word. Uh, my new King James says fragrance. Some of your other translations has the word aroma. There is a certain aroma to you as you are preaching the gospel. Now that's kind of an interesting way to look at it. But you know that word aroma is really interesting because that word aroma really creates certain things in your brain as soon as you have those different type of smells that come to your mind. And, you know, we are work that way. That's just the way we are wired. My wife absolutely hates wearing perfume. She doesn't wear any type of perfume in any way whatsoever. She hates it. So anytime I get one of the boys back, and if I pick up one of the boys and I hold them, and you kind of put your head in them, um, if they smell very nice, I know that either Grandma Thomas or Aunt Lori was holding them because they have a nice aroma about them. And you have that certain type of thing. Why do gals wear perfume? There's that certain aroma. Well, you have a spiritual smell to you. Now, I don't know what it's going to be, but according to this, it says very simply put in verse 15, your fragrance to those who are being saved. You have a beautiful fragrance to those being saved. There's something refreshing about the body of Christ. When you're walking with the Lord and you come in and you hear the worship, you hear the teaching, you have the fellowship, someone says, I pray for you, you just kind of breathe that in and you're just like, that's what I needed. Lord, thank you for that. Maybe you're going through a tough day and you get a phone call, a text, or an email from somebody saying, hey, you're having a hard time praying. You just breathe that in. Thank you for caring, Lord. And there's that fragrance there of that refreshing Ah, oh, it's a great, wonderful thing. It's an absolutely wonderful thing. But the other thing is, the other side of that aroma, verse 16, to the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. See, the world doesn't like the way Christians smell. They don't like it in any way whatsoever. And I've shared with you before, half joking, half serious, the best conversation killer I ever have with anybody is as soon as I tell them I'm a pastor, generally speaking, they don't want to talk to me. I could get a conversation going further with them if I told them I pushed drugs or something like that. They would want to have that conversation. If I tell them a pastor, they just want to stop. Because to the non-believing world, the aroma of Christianity reminds them of what? Death. It convicts them. It condemns them. And so therefore, as you are talking to people, you know if you run into another brother or sister in the Lord, and as you speak to them, you know that conversation is just refreshing and encouraging. You walk away from that thinking how cool it was to run into another believer. But at the same time, too, if you run into someone who's not saved and the subject of God comes up, verse 16, you can feel the conversation just start changing. And all of a sudden, that great fragrance of life becomes a fragrance of death because they really just don't want to talk about it. And you can probably all give examples. I can give examples, too, of where that conversation switched to the Lord and it just stops. Some of the greatest compliments I've ever gotten as a Christian are times where I was not 
proclaiming, preaching the gospel. Somebody saw something in my life and said, hey, are you a Christian? not saying it happens that often, but it has happened. And you think, wow, Lord, that's the way it's supposed to be. Is there supposed to be a fragrance about us? as it says there in verse 15, an aroma about us that as you go into work, you go into life, you go into school, people know there's something different about you. And so, hooking on these words, we're supposed to preach, proclaim the gospel. We wait till God opens the doors. And you have to ask yourself, verses 15 and 16, what type of fragrance are you putting out to the world? Is it a fragrance of life, hopefully pointing people towards Christ? Or is it a fragrance of death? Which is not necessarily wrong. Because that's that aroma of conviction where the world sees that. But hopefully you can switch that around to being an aroma of life that points them towards Christ. And why do we do it? Because of verse 17. The key word to me in verse 17 is that word of sincerity. Why do you proclaim the gospel? Ask yourself that. If you proclaim the gospel because, well, James, that's just what you said to do. I proclaim the gospel because that way I can tell other people I do it. I proclaim the gospel because, well, I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. I mean, you always tell me the two W's, witness and worship. No, you want to proclaim the gospel because of verse 17, because of sincerity. You truly care about these people that you've absolutely never met in your life and you want them to be saved in Christ. You have a sincere desire and heart to see them be saved in the Lord. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 15. I cannot stress this to you enough. The reason we are here and on this planet that God has created us is because we're supposed to sincerely proclaim the gospel. John 15 is where we're going. A couple quick verses, and most of you are going to know these. You may even have them marked or underlined in your Bible, but it's a good thing to know this. Whatever spot you're going into, be it work, be it home, be it just going out on the town, I don't know what it is, be it school, you are supposed to sincerely have a heart for a burden for those that aren't saved. That's why God created you. Look at John 15, verse 8. John 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you'll be my disciples. So how is God the Father glorified? By you bearing fruit, because you are a disciple of the Lord. How do you bear fruit? Bearing fruit is going out there and proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Stay in John 15 and jump ahead to verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Why? That you should go and bear fruit. You don't have to go spend money on a book to find out your purpose and why you're here on this planet. You are on this planet because of John 15, verse 16, that you should go and bear fruit. How simple is that? That is why you're here. That is the purpose of your existence of your life, is to sincerely care for those that are not saved. You know, on the, on the bottom of our bulletin, where is that at here? Our little mission statement of a church, to see people saved and go deeper in Jesus. That's how simple it is. It's just to see people saved and go deeper in Christ. It's to sincerely care. And I've got to be honest with you. I have to sometimes do a heart check every now and then in my Christian walk because I become so desensitized to the Word and I become so desensitized to salvation and everything like that that I sometimes forget to have that sincere heart of spreading the gospel. I spread the gospel because that's my job. That's what I do. It will almost become second nature to us where you tell people about the Lord. I, I was at a situation recently um, and there was, there was an older gentleman sitting all by himself I had time to kill. I'm the type of guy, I'm just going to go over and sit down beside him. Sit down beside him and start talking about things. And next thing you know, I had a chance to plant some seeds, etc. And so I got done talking, etc. Well, then I started thinking, well, why did I do that? Well, I did that because that's just what you do. Wait a second. Why did I do that? I did that because that's what you're supposed to do. I have to stop and say, wait a second here. How's my heart? So I want to, verse 17, preach the gospel out of sincerity. 
You know, when you look at Christ, his heart literally broke to the point of tears of people that weren't saved. The Bible says that we're supposed to have that same heart and mindset as Christ. And I think sometimes as Christians, especially for some of us that's been walking with the Lord for a while, we become desensitized to spreading the gospel. And I think we need to look at these words like verse 17 and say, Okay, Lord, out of sincerity, I truly care for these people, and I have a heart's desire to see them get saved in the Lord because, as it says in Ezekiel, God wants no one to go to hell. Ezekiel 33:11, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Lord, I want to have that same heart to sincerely preach the gospel when you give us the open door, and I want to be a fragrance of life to everybody I run into. Now, let's stop there for a second because he kind of changes paths here in verse, excuse me, in chapter 3. Anybody have any quick questions, comments about any of those things? Yeah, John. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I firmly believe that if we'd run into Paul, I think Paul is a very emotional man. And emotions are not necessarily bad, but we can tell by looking at Paul, Paul got frustrated very easily. Uh, Paul also, his heart broke very easily. We're going to get to a few chapters here. When Paul lists all the things that he struggled with, all the physical beatings he endured, he talked about how his daily concern for the church was heavy on his heart. So I, I like what you said there, John, because we do see that. I want to preach, I want to have an open door, but yet, verse 13, I have to deal with the emotions of life. And you know what's going to happen, and I know what's going to happen. You're going to go in with that mindset of, Lord, I want to be a light and a witness, and you're going to get up tomorrow morning, you're going to share the gospel with that coworker, and you're going to wake up tomorrow morning, you know what's going to happen? You're going to have a horrible headache. Okay, can you work through that? Or you know what? God's going to open a door right in the middle of work, and you're going to say, Lord, any time but now. Well, the Lord says, and we're going to get to this verse in just a little bit here, God says, if I open the door, I'll give you the strength, the power, and the might to go through that door. He's not going to open the door and not give you the strength to do it. He will definitely do that for you, without a doubt. Anybody else have any quick questions, comments before we move on? Okay, let's see what the next words are. So, how do we do this? How do we preach the gospel through the open door, have the fragrance of life and sincerity? How do we do it? Well, we do it through our lives, verse 1 of chapter 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need as some other's epistles of condemnation, excuse me, commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Here's the key word here, this idea of being an epistle letter. This is your witness. This is your testimony. Paul is saying the way you do this is verse 2 and 3. Your life is an open book that is read by people. And this is the thing I see a lot in Christianity. People want to go deeper in their walk with the Lord, but sometimes they have such blatant sin in their lives that people can't see the gospel message being presented because of the way they're living their lives, being in an immoral way and not what God wants. And I'm not saying that in a judgmental way, but here's the truth of the matter, is you have to stop and say, okay, what's the first thing people see about me? Hopefully they see your walk with Christ. But I've heard stories, and I've known people come up and tell me. Uh, the, the people that get drunk at the parties and try to witness. Oh, come on. What's going to come out of that? Or the person at work that one hand is flying off the handle, words are coming out of their mouth that shouldn't be coming out of their mouth, anger, frustration, and then during lunch break, let me tell you about Christ, how he's changed my life. Wait a second, what is the world going to remember? Or maybe they have a lifestyle or living away or in a relationship that is not godly, but yet they're trying to proclaim the gospel. People are going to say, wait a second, when I look at your life, your epistle written on our heart, 
That's what's going to come across. Now, you can do one of two things like that. Generally, what happens is people say, well, see, this is why I can't be a, a light and a witness, because there's all these things in my life. We all have sin in our lives. But yet, if there are things in your life that you know are hindering your testimony, your witness, why would you want to continue in those things? Those are going to hinder your ability to proclaim the gospel. Because people are not going to see you as a Christian. They're going to see these glaring things in your life that need to be worked on. Now, we all have things we need to work on. I want to make this abundantly clear. I don't want anybody leaving this message tonight thinking, well, i got so much sin in my life I can't witness. That's not what I'm saying. But if you know there's things in your life that are causing a hindrance, verses 2 and 3 say, wait a second, you're supposed to be an epistle of the Lord that people know and see and read. And as they see your life, your marriage, the way you handle things at work, the way you handle situations in life, the way you handle the emotional ups and downs, that's going to be your witness and testimony. I'll tell you right now, it's when you go through tough times that there's going to be more eyes watching you. Anybody, while the going is good, can say praise the Lord. But what's it going to be like when you're going through the difficult times in life? That is where people are really going to read you and say, is this Christianity thing real to them? Is it real? How do you do it? Well, verse 4, And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What's the key word there in verses 5 and 6? Sufficient. Now, your translation, this is one of those strange words where every translation translates it differently. If you have the good old King James, it's going to say able. New King James says sufficient. New Living says enabled. And NIV, believe I, says, says competent. The point of the matter is God is going to make you able, enabled, competent, and sufficient to be the light and the witness because that's what God does. And you can't do it on your own. Look at verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves. See, here's a problem that I see in Christianity. Some people think they're okay. They're the ones that say, oh, I wonder where God needs me. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. God, God doesn't need you in any place whatsoever. God may choose to use you in a place, but to think that God needs you. He's up there in heaven biting his fingernails because he doesn't know what to do. No, he doesn't need us. He's the one that makes us sufficient in verses 5 and 6 to go do these things. See, I know people that try to proclaim the gospel. They try to have the door be open. They try to do it, and they try to do it all on their own. That wears you out. I, I, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize I just need to step back. When he opens the door, I go. When he closes the door, I just wait. There's nothing wrong with that. Because my sufficiency is in Christ, verses 5 and 6. Because the reason my sufficiency is Christ is because here's the next word you need to know. Look at the end of verse 6. The Spirit gives what? Life. Spirit gives life. John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, I have come and that you may have life and have it more abundantly. The reason you're here is to witness to people to give them the life of Christ. That is why you're here. And as you witness to people, God will give you the words. Turn, if you will, real quick to Luke chapter 21. Because here's a big thing that pops up. People say, I want to witness, I want to proclaim, I want to share, but... I've heard all the things, I don't know what to say, or I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing, or I, I'm afraid that I'm going to say something that's going to cause more harm than good. Fill in the blank. Let's go to Luke chapter 21 and see about this. Luke chapter 21. If God has called us to preach the gospel through the open door, he's given us the sufficiency to do it, he's also going to give you the words to do it. Luke chapter 21, and let's go ahead and start here in verse 12. 
But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. It will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Now just stop right there for a second. Do you realize God allows certain things to happen in your life that are not pleasant, that are not enjoyable, and it looks like a failure on his part, but he allows those things to happen because of verse 13, so you have an opportunity to witness. Isn't that amazing? Verse 14. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. God says, when I put you in a position to share the gospel, I will give you the words to say, how to say it, when to say it. He goes, I will take care of that. Too often we sit there and say, well, what, what if they say this? What if this happens? Luke 21 tells me, God says, I'll give you the words to say. Now, how does God give you the words to say? Well, some ways that God gives you the words to say is because you have spent time in prayer and preparation studying the Word. So therefore, when these things pop up, you have those verses in your mind, and the Holy Spirit says, according to John 14, He brings to remembrance those things that you studied. Have you ever had a devotional time where you've read those passages and verses, and you got absolutely nothing out of it? Nothing. And you think, why did I waste my time this morning reading that? You planted those verses in your heart and mind, and the Holy Spirit says, when it comes time, I can bring those verses back to you because you took the time and effort to put it in there. Thank God for that. But there's also the supernatural blessing too. The Bible talks about word of wisdom and word of knowledge where you're in the middle of something and you don't know what to say. And then you say something that is much smarter than what you really could have thought of on your own. And as you say those things, you realize, that's the Lord speaking through me. I was doing a counseling session recently with somebody, and um, they brought up a point, and, and I gave this answer, and they're like, that was good. And I'm, like, I'm thinking in my head, yeah, that was good. I need to write that down because that's not James. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear some things, and you think, wow, Lord, whatever is coming out of my mouth is definitely not of me because I cannot put that coherent sentence together. And number two, Lord, I haven't looked at that verse in months, if not years. I don't know how you brought that back to my attention. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's the beauty of this. People say, why study the Scripture? I get in there and I read the Bible, I get nothing out of it. You're getting something out of it. You may just not realize it. The Holy Spirit will bring those things back to remembrance. Well, I don't know what I'm going to say. The Holy Spirit will take care of that. You just have to trust that He is going to do it. I love that verse there in verse 14. Therefore, settle it in your hearts. You settle your heart down and say, Lord, it's there. You have it. You'll take care of it. That's part of the beauty of this. Is God says... We'll take care of it. Remember when God called Moses to go uh, into Egypt and to set the Israelites free? Moses just had excuse after excuse after excuse. And Moses said, my tongue, highly paraphrased, my tongue won't work. God says, am I not the God that made the tongue? He goes, I will give you the words to say. you got to trust that the Lord's going to give you the words to say. Let's jump back now to 2 Corinthians 3 and let's finish this up. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments so far? Because we're going to change topics here once again. God opens the door for us to preach the gospel. We do it in sincerity. Our lives are a witness. God is, gives us the sufficiency to do this, to proclaim life. He's the one that gives us the words and how to do it. Any quick questions, comments here before we move on? Okay. Now it kind of changes subjects here a little bit. Back to this whole ministry of death and life. Look at verse 7. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, Old Testament law, so that the children of Israel cannot look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which the glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? 
For the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because the glory that excels. Now, a lot of us read those verses and say, I got absolutely nothing out of that. What this is simply saying is this. When Moses got the law from the Old Testament, that was a glorious thing. It was such a glorious thing that the Bible says that Moses actually shined when he got brought down the law from the mountain. And what Paul is saying here is, wait a second. If that Old Testament thing was glorious, what we're doing now in the New Testament, man, that's even more glorious. Because the Old Testament was a ministry of, verse 9, condemnation. And what we're doing now through the Spirit, verse 9, it exceeds this. He says, what we're doing now in proclaiming the gospel exceeds what Moses did in the Old Testament. And so therefore, if what Moses did in the Old Testament being condemnation was still considered glorious, what we're doing now is even more glorious than that. Do you realize that? I think as Christians we forget this. You are given the opportunity and blessing to tell people about the Lord. I don't know why God uses you and me. The angels would do a much better job. People would do a much better job than us. God says, though, I want to use you. What a privilege it is to go and be able to present the gospel to people. You, you get to represent the Lord in all that you do. Let's never take that for granted. But too often as Christians, we take that for granted, the opportunity that we get to proclaim the gospel to people. We get to see people saved out of death. I'm not picking on anybody here. I don't know what you guys do for a living. But a lot of the things that we do for a living on a regular day-in and day-out basis is very earthly. It's an earthly job that we get paid. That's what happens. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when you get to spread the gospel and tell somebody about Christ, you get to do something that makes an eternal difference for all of eternity. You get to impact something for all of eternity. That's why Paul says that's pretty glorious. That's pretty amazing. Real quick, I just want to throw this out there. In verse 9 where it says the ministry of condemnation, you've got to remember the purpose of the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was given to be a law, according to Romans 3.19 if you're taking notes, it was given to prove to you that you're a sinner. The purpose of the Old Testament law was for you to look at the law, try to live the law, then throw your hands up in the air in the desperation and say, I can't do this. And God says, yeah, that's the point. You can't do this. And so therefore, Lord, I can't do this. What am I supposed to do? Well, according to the New Testament, the Bible says then the law was supposed to point us to Christ and desperation and say, Lord, we can't live this life. And he says, I know you can't live this life. That's why I'm giving you Christ. Remember when we went through Leviticus just um, a couple weeks ago? Leviticus, you read about all those laws and sacrifices, etc. We couldn't have lived that way. There's no way you could dot all your I's and cross all your T's. That's the whole point. It was a ministry, verse 9, of condemnation to show you that you're a sinner and you can't do it and that you need Christ. See, guys, we live in this beautiful age of grace. Aren't you thankful that if you snap at your wife, don't just get zapped right then? Aren't you thankful that when you go into work tomorrow and you think something you shouldn't, you just don't keel over dead? There's this grace thing. Aren't you thankful that when you go into work tomorrow and you say something you shouldn't, you don't have to stop what you're doing and go find some lamb and kill it? You have grace. And this is what Paul is trying to tell you. You live in a glorious thing because you have that relationship with Christ. Problem is, we're so used to it. Boy, God help us to never forget what it means to be born again, walking with the Lord. Let's move on here. Verse 11, it's more glorious what we have now. So verse 12, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. See, guys, verse 12, you have been changed in the Lord. 
Don't you want to see other people get saved? I mean, that's the whole point of this. Is if, if God has saved us, why wouldn't we want to pass that along? I mean, I've heard all the analogies. Fill in whatever you want. If you had the cure for cancer, wouldn't you want other people to know? If you knew something tragic was going to happen, wouldn't you want to pass that along? But yet the problem is we're saved, born again, walking in the Lord, and we just don't feel it's our opportunity or reason to talk about it. Why well, don't want to push anything down people's throat? You know, I don't want to cause ripples at work. I just heard a great teaching that just reminded me, as soon as you become a Christian, you're going to cause ripples. <laughs> I mean, for some of you that live in a family where you have people that aren't saved, you know that you're going to cause ripples by just proclaiming Christ. Without even trying to cause problems, you're going to cause problems. That's what Jesus does. Jesus says, I'm divisive. Because I make people decide life or death, life or death. That is just what's going to happen. But we have hope, verse 12, and so we have boldness. Verse 13, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel cannot look steadily at the end of what was passing away. That's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. You know, as just was mentioned earlier, we see some of these people and we sometimes don't see the human side of them. Now, verse 13 is open to debate. I read a couple of different commentaries on this just to get some different opinions. I'm going to share my opinion. My opinion, it sure looks like that as Moses came down from the mountain, his face was shining because of his encounter with God to get the law, was his face kind of started to shine not as much. It sure seems like Moses put a veil over his face so people couldn't see that the glory was starting to pass away. Almost like coloring your hair, you know, hey, I don't want you to see that the glory is going away. Now, one commentator I read said, well, he was doing this so that way the Jews wouldn't be scared. of." And it's like, no, I think Moses didn't want people to think the glory was, was passing away a little bit there. Come on, we're, we're, we're prideful people a little bit. That's what we are. Verse 14, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because that veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is right, a veil lies on the heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And that's where we're going to stop. Because next week we get into this idea of being veiled. What does it mean? Paul uses this as a stepping stone. Very simply put, why is it when I tell somebody about Christ, do they not just hit their knees right then and accept the Lord? Because they're, they're veiled. They don't see it. Why is it when scriptures are being read, they don't get it? Because they're veiled. That's the stepping stone to next week. But the beginning of this is God has called you to preach through an open door, to spread the fragrance of life out of sincerity, through your lives as an open epistle. God gives you the words and the wisdom what to say, and you're here to do what? The end of verse 6 of chapter 3, to give life through Christ. That is why you are here, is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the dying world. To worship and to witness. The next time something in your life tries to bring you down, look at it through the lens of eternity. And you will realize, next to people being saved and going to heaven or hell, so little of what we worry about in this world means nothing. What matters is the eternal destination of the people we live with, work with, and run into. God, help us to take those open doors and to proclaim the gospel of Christ through him, through his power, when he leads us. Anybody have any final questions, comments here, about anything we read before we go ahead and close up? All righty. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer then.